0: Yo, this hot, this the spot. There it is, pod.com. We're interviewing the best comedians. So tune in quick and get your ears receiving them. we talking about life and life to stream right to you from the microphone
1: right to your home, dude. Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo,
0: because there it is. Welcome to the There It Is Podcast. America's Podcast, where we talk to interesting people. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Great episode today. We have actor, writer, director, comedian Boris Heikin on. He's Ukrainian born, so we start our conversation discussing what's going on over there. And we do have a link in the bio for ways you can donate to the relief effort in the Ukraine. The topic does shift after that discussion to things more lighthearted. Boris has a very unique perspective on everything we discuss. It's such a great chat. I can't wait for you to hear it. So why don't we just get right to it? Here's my chat with Boris Haiken. It's such a weird time, especially like we're we're still kind of reeling from the pandemic. And then also, Ukraine. are you Ukrainian born? Yeah, I am. Oh, wow. Okay. Do Do you have a lot of family over there?
1: No, we we have zero family over there. We have a friend like my dad's childhood friend and his now adult son are still in Odessa, which is where we're from. Mm -hmm. And otherwise, I mean, everybody to like distant cousins that I can think of as soon as, you know, everything collapsed. Everybody, some left a little bit before the collapse. I have some cousins that came here a few years before us. We came here in 91 and then like. Basically between 91 and 98, like all of my family that could get out went to either here or Germany or somewhere in Europe or Israel or basically anywhere. As soon as they could leave, they left. It's a complicated thing because my parents obviously have a much closer relationship with the country as a whole than I do. I was seven when we left. So like I have more of an association maybe with the city that I'm from than with the country as a whole but it's also a weird thing because we came as Jewish refugees. And so that kind of complicates it in the sense that like Jews weren't treated great in the Soviet union in general. And so it's one of those things where like they're, you know, it's a, it's a love hate relationship where obviously Mm -hmm. uh, my parents, especially care about the country and and don't want to see this happening. And then they're, they kind of like, jokingly where like you know the one thing putin accomplished is like now they hate the russians more than the jews in ukraine <laughs> like he kind of turned the focus to somebody else
0: yeah that's really complicated it's uh, there's some resemblance to being black in america where it's, it's like well true. i have more of a connection to america than i do africa because i don't even know my ancestry and i can't know my african ancestry and but yet also the reason i can't angers me so much you know it's like i don't it's it's complicated it's those are complicated feelings i don't even know how to fully express
1: yeah but i that entered my mind as well that there's definitely a parallel there between like this is the country that probably more For you, America, than for me, Ukraine. For me, it's probably I'm closer to America being that country now, being the country that I, you know, see as my country. But for my parents, probably it's more of almost a closer parallel where uh, who they are as human beings is still, for the better or worse, very much related to this country. That yeah, there's there's not amazing treatment (laughs) and aspects to that.
0: Right. Well. Yeah. uh, I. To pivot here, I know it's a a difficult and and dark subject, but to pivot to comedy for a second, because (laughs) you're an actor, you're a director, you do comedy, stand-up and otherwise, and you have been able to find ways to still create humor in regards to this subject. You had a funny tweet, Even it was so funny that even Justina, when she saw it, was like, did you see this tweet of forces?" (laughs) That was, uh, As a Ukrainian refugee in America, I want to be abundantly clear that the best thing you can do at the moment is book me on your show. That got a lot of attention, that that tweet. A lot of people liked that tweet.
1: I um, know. I was a little surprised about how much that one took off, especially because I was almost worried about whether, like, the irony was clear. Only right. because my, my parents, my dad texted me about it, and he my parents are very supportive of my comedy and have a good sense of humor. And I think maybe they didn't quite see the irony and they almost were like, my dad was like, I thought it was kind of inappropriate. And your mom did too. I was like, well, there's some, you know, it's meant to be ironic, blah, blah, blah. blah. And so hopefully they, they picked up on it. But yeah, I was surprised that that specifically on Twitter took off.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a weird space, Twitter, to be funny because, especially with irony, like people obviously love sarcasm on Twitter, but it's when they're, when it's like really about being mean to somebody, that's when sarcasm really uh, explodes on Twitter. But a joke like that, where you're not making fun of anybody, and you're just being ironic about the position you're in. And it's if it's making fun of anybody, it's opportunists who, right. would, who should try to get some some personal gain from it.
1: Well, myself a little bit, to be totally honest. there There is like sort of this, it, the target is definitely di- people who do kind of exploit situations like that for personal gain, but also almost myself a little bit where there is a little bit of like, you know, I I did have people reach out. I had another joke that was actually to go on the same parallel that was like, I've never connected more to my black friends during Black Lives Matter than my like white acquaintances nervously texting me. Are you OK with everything going on right now? And like <laughs> you do start getting a certain amount of attention and you can't help as a human being like, you know, I'm not above it. I, I do comedy because I like attention. And so part of that joke was like almost half poking fun at the fact that I'm like it's like I don't know it's it's both a joke and like at least I'd have to if I was to be totally honest it's partially sincere in the sense that like I want to do comedy whatever the reason is that somebody wants to book me, I'm happy to go and do a show. And so when I had some people reach out like, hey, you're Ukrainian, do you want to like do my show and speak on this or whatever? I was like, yeah, I'm not going to say no to that. I'm not a geopolitical expert by any means, nor am I, you know, I was seven years old when I came here and I try to stay informed and talk to my parents. But also if I'm being booked for a reason other than my comedy you're sort of making a mistake because you can probably get someone who's both a better expert on the political situation and somebody who's a better, a more informed citizen of Ukraine.
0: No, it's interesting. And you also had another tweet, one that I liked, but did not get as much attention, which was (laughs) you got to hand it to Putin. He got everyone to stop posting about Wordle, which I thought was great. But that one doesn't go off. Probably because people like talking about Wordle. You know what I Less mean? Like, yeah. People didn't want to like that because you were talking about them. Yeah. That's my theory. Yeah.
1: And I think also people are, yeah, I mean you could there, there there's definitely a few theories for why that tweet didn't work. Maybe it's just not as funny as you and I might think it is. <laughs> <laughs> that's the real hard truth. That's that's certainly possible. But also I think people get so you know, anything that starts with you gotta hand it to Putin, maybe there's a greater bar for how much it has to hit for people uh-huh. to feel to feel comfortable handing it to Putin. Even though obviously that's a joke and he's not right. Nowhere in his itineraries for invading Ukraine was people will stop tweeting about Wordle.
0: Yeah, you have a knack for comedy like that. I feel like you're very concise with finding a joke about something that maybe would be touchy with people, just knowing you for years, whenever I see tweets, I'll think, gosh, that's such a good joke about something that people maybe don't want to talk about or an aspect of it that people don't want to address. How do you find humor in in those areas with those subjects?
1: I think my approach for starters is just not is to like have humility with whatever my personal opinion might be on the subject matter. I think uh-huh. when, whenever like my pri my priority is to like, I've even had jokes that I kind of like, but if it's a subject that I feel particularly strongly on and I feel myself trying to express my opinion in that joke, I still see it as like detrimental to whatever it is I'm trying to do as far as the joke goes. And I like doing, you know, political stuff and anything like that where I feel like everyone could laugh at it. And I think part of that starts with kind of knowing the best version of people who feel differently about that particular topic, knowing the most like generous version of their point of view, because I think if it's taking like a really shallow version of what conservatives might think about this subject or a shallow version of what liberals might think about it. It might be funny to the people that like super agree with it and really want to laugh at that view. But even then, it just it ends up being a little bit more hacky or like a little more of a low hanging fruit. Whereas if I can find something that both sides can laugh at, I know that that in itself is almost a little bit of a cliche. But I feel like trying to have that goal does make it funnier because it forces you If you do keep thinking about it, if it you'll you eventually get somewhere that's more interesting to me than just trying to appeal to like whatever sensibility might agree with you.
0: Right, that is, I think, a hard thing to do. Obviously, just like kind of having your finger on the pulse of how people are feeling and being able to get to the core of things is pretty. Those are useful skills to being able to do what you're talking about. But at least in the Twitter space. It's pretty hard to put that stuff out there without someone misusing it sometimes or, for sure. or you know, just completely misrepresenting it. I, f- I feel like I see that all the time now.
1: Inevitable, for sure. I think the one defense I have is that I never tweet sincere opinions on anything. And so... It- at the least, if somebody tries to misread it, I'll be like, just go through my timeline and find one thing where I was sincere. Go look at what it is that I'm trying to do and be honest with yourself. Is it at all possible that I was trying to sincerely state the thing you think you're misreading right now?
0: Right. Have you run into that where people are maybe holding your feet to the fire on something?
1: I don't think so. I've done some podcasts where I, you know, similar to this, it's not all jokey-jokey and I might have certain opinions on things. And um, I've gotten into like little arguments there, but even there, like I do Live at the Cellar or Live from America, rather, which is like the com- one of the Comedy Cellar podcasts. And they'll have like a few comics on and they'll have a few like political experts or something like that. And so, you know, my job is to be jokey there, but every once in a while I get a little bit out of my element and try to get into it. And I've certainly been taken to task for stuff I've been misinformed on, but I've also sometimes corrected somebody who should have been an expert on the subject who maybe wasn't the best on it. And I'm sure if somebody wanted to, the way people do with podcasts, scan through things that I've said there, they would find plenty of stuff to take me to task on. And so... I'll worry about that if I ever get enough notoriety for, someone to, for it to be worth it for someone to spend their time that way.
0: That is a weird activity that people are getting into, that when someone gets hired for a show, so then someone starts going through the Lexus Nexus or whatever to find everything they've said on a podcast. And I'm like, "What? you're just someone on Twitter. Why did you take the time to do that at all?
1: Cause there's incentives. There's there it's just, it's just responding to incentives, I think. And there's, you know, you can get notoriety writing an article or writing a piece. And it's also easier, you know, some people are like, Oh, this guy, where the fuck does he have time to spend all day? You can upload a bunch of podcasts now to transcription services, have it be transcribed automatically and then control, find whatever slurs or words that you need right. to.
0: You computers have made it a lot easier. Right, that's true. It's just, I know that, I just don't like, I guess, the how disingenuous a lot of it can be sometimes when someone finds something and it's like, okay, it doesn't seem like you're bringing this up in good faith. For sure. And it gets to be sort of like, I, you don't maybe need to be the watchman here then on this subject if you don't actually care. Yeah. And I think there's some people who are also like, Well, I go to comedy clubs all the time and hear worse stuff and everyone laughs. And no one gets upset. And so why are we complaining about this guy who did something as a joke? It it just happened to be in front of everyone. Like, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that.
1: I mean, that's the thing with stand up is, you know, it's really one. It's really hard when you remove context. To know what someone was doing up there, especially when like, you know, I've heard people describe and they were like and they said this and everyone in the audience laughed. And it's like, well, what does that tell you that everyone in that room is a horrible human being or that perhaps they had a different way of looking at it? And then also adding context, the th- how you mentioned on Twitter, there's like somebody clearly makes a joke and then someone like quote tweets it and it's like, you know, my grandma survives this genocide in this country and and blah blah blah. and it's like yeah man nothing is funny if you give the full context of like the pains of humanity next to the thing that someone obviously was like joking about and wasn't you know what i mean like a a huge part of humor is like finding laughter and painful things and of course if you fully bring up like hey you're joking about this and i've actually spent 20 years suffering from this and it's like yeah Now it's not funny. You're right. Now that you said that, that joke is no longer funny. But it was just a second ago.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It's obvious that there are a lot of different kinds of people who are taking in stuff. And, like, they could be in that room listening and all these different kinds of people are laughing. So, obviously, it's not like, you know, someone makes a joke and it's just white supremacists in the room. so they're laughing at the the racist thing and then there's one person who's not a white supremacist who's like you know that's not the scenario
1: right right (laughs) you didn't just walk upon a secret clan show that you right right To get a ticket
0: to (laughs) it's just staten island man (laughs) (laughs) but you know there are There are Democrats and Republicans in that room. There are Libertarians in that room. There are politically agnostic people in that room. There are people all over the spectrum of of whatever topic. And they're all laughing together. I feel like maybe we can laugh together more if we just sort of acknowledge that.
1: For sure. I do think part of it, I mean, there's a lot of just like, for a complicated thing, there's a lot of very simple Incentives and economics that I think contribute to it that are Uh not that complicated. One thing I'll mention is really simply a lot of the people that have a very narrow perspective on what constitutes comedy that's morally okay or comedy that's um, needs to be supporting particular points of views come from an ecosystem where very few people pay to see comedy. And so you have people that have spent their entire time around UCB, around indie shows that are free. And when you see that, A, I think your entire perspective just maybe values what's happening up there less, even though you claim it's more. But I think the fact that you have a judge over the content, I think, is indicative that it's less. And it's because it's free. When you perceive something as free, you see it as having less value, in my opinion. Whereas if you go to some of these shows where people are doing the raunchy stuff and they're doing stuff that's more offensive, potentially, a lot of it is just club shows where everyone, A, paid money. And so now they want their money's worth and they want to have a good time. They're all getting drunk and they're just laughing at these subjects. And I've even I've almost gone further to one end of it where I used to have the perspective that, like, well, any subject is okay to joke about as long as it's like a smart, you know, really unique, poignant take. And I've been to enough comedy clubs where that's not true. People will laugh at the dumbest shit about the worst subjects. And some of those jokes as jokes, if you were to write them down and read it, I'd also have very little respect for those jokes. But at the same time, some of the comics that do those jokes are doing them in a way where in the moment they're working with the crowd, they're doing race jokes, they're doing sexuality jokes, they're doing gender jokes. And they're a performer. And so there's comics out there that are club comics that are maybe not doing as like intelligent writing as I would prefer somebody else might prefer. But as comics, they're conducting the energy of a room in a way that's masterful. And that if you're in the moment and you actually want to laugh and you want to be a part of it, it's really fucking fun. And it's not the most brilliant stuff. And I I won't name, but I do. it. It's funny because there is someone specifically in my head at a show at stand up new york a woman who was doing like you know rape jokes and and like pedophilia jokes and stuff and single-handedly i'm just watching her destroy and i'm like if you told me those jokes on paper i would be like yeah that's hacky shit like i have no like you need to do something smarter than that for this material but then watching it and watching everyone enjoy themselves i'm like no these people are here to like not have these types of conversations, not be overly cerebral or like intellectualize what it is that you're actually saying underneath it. Right. It's it's a really interesting thing because there's the argument that comedy can be really powerful and challenge things. And that's true. And at the same time, it can be fucking nonsense that you laugh at in a room and leave and tell your friends once in a while, remind yourselves of
0: that time you saw that show. You know, I tend to agree with that because you know, I, I like John Oliver's show and I like Seth Meyer's and, and and they're saying stuff that I think, you know, I'm laughing and then I'm also going, that was a good point. At the same time, I don't think it has big picture impact. And but also at the same time, I don't only want that kind of stuff. And I also have grown to hate people looking at the underlying what are they really trying to say? You know, like with, with this joke, they are really belittling these people and, and they're punching down when really that's not what they were doing at all. They weren't punching down. They were just like being silly or, or, you know, they just weren't talking about what somebody was saying they were talking about. There was no underlying point whatsoever. And they weren't you know, they just completely misunderstood. And I hate just the, like reading into it stuff that goes on.
1: For sure. Also, you know, that context, it's funny because everyone has such a different context, you know, like a room in Brooklyn versus a room in Texas is going to have a really not just a different idea of like the culture and the shared ideals and what's funny and what's not, but also like who is like the term like, People use like punching down as if it's static, regardless of where you are, can be a thing that changes so much. I remember there was one particular I did an open mic in Brooklyn and this guy did like a gay voice at the mic in a joke and the joke bombed and most of his set didn't go great in general. But then like a, a comic or two after him, somebody went up and just started railing on this guy who was like. In his like mid to late 40s doing an open mic in Williamsburg and the guy and and he heard, you know, worst case scenario, he is tone deaf enough to not realize that the jokes bombed and will continue bombing. But more than likely, he heard that his bit bombed. And this guy is just like this gay guy who went up after him is just like you old fucking homophobe blah 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 just using his set instead of being funny to just rail against this guy and then somebody else in the audience actually was kind of like all right like easy he was just like trying to do a joke that didn't go well and then he called that guy a homophobe too and just really started railing off and then i went up afterwards i ended up getting an applause break not to toot my own horn because i was basically like bro like he bombed He heard he bombed. But like, let's be frank, like we're not in Alabama. This is Williamsburg. It is literally easier to be gay here than in your late 40s. Like you're using your podium to bully this guy because in your mind, there's this permanent power dynamic where a white guy in his late 40s, even at a mic where everyone just watched him bomb, somehow holds power over you. But really, you're just a bully like in any other world. This situation, like in another state whatever it is like the situation would be flipped in some way and you would find some other way to bully because that's clearly your goal here you just got what you think is a pass you got an excuse you saw it you saw him bombing and you pounced and it's like yeah that doesn't make a joke that's for damn sure but also like it just emphasizes the fact that these aren't especially on twitter like these things aren't yeah. so static everyone has a very different system that they're looking at these things through
0: no i've definitely seen bull- i've even experienced bullying from people that i so- like socially agreed with but like there was one person i won't say who they are but there's one person i'm thinking of both of these people actually had a lot of clout and followers but one of them really has a lot of clout yep. let's go back though to your life and how you get because you've, you've done a ton and apparently you've even been a Russian conductor. Oh, that's a joke because there's a Boris <laughs> Heiken who is a Russian is. conductor.
1: We're in a battle for the top Google results neck and neck every this motherfucker's dead and I'm still competing with him <laughs> neck and neck.
0: And while you're cut you are very neck and neck let me show you this, this picture <laughs> if you if you Google you there's a picture of you but it says Russian Conductor under the name.
1: Wow. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> the wires get crossed sometimes. They do. That happened. I, I think there was a Wikipedia thing like that, too, at one point. Well, at least my face is beating out his. That means that he might be yeah. more accomplished, but he's also uglier. So how about that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, <they're Boris> <laughs> they want to see my face while listening to your music. <laughs> I, I am his uh, or he is my. Cyrano de Bergerac.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So while you haven't done conducting, you have done all these other, I mentioned it earlier, directing, writing, stand-up, and you were in North Coast doing hip-hop improv. I don't know how you do so much so well. How, How are you doing all of these things on the level that you're doing? Where did it begin for you? Have you just been performing since you were young?
1: Well, first, thank
0: you. I appreciate that.
1: I when I was young, I think I was just like kind of goofy and I did skits with friends and stuff. And then I I guess I did like improv in high school. And it wasn't until I came to New York and was kind of like doing stuff at UCB where I was like, oh, this is not just like a hobby. This is a thing that you can really like build into something. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I think part of it, I always feel like I need to step it up with certain things. And so I have like periods of time where I just invest the bulk of my efforts into one specific thing maybe and then go back to juggling stuff and then invest into another. And so I have like little spurts of growth in each of those. But yeah, otherwise, I don't know. It's hard to answer that because I always feel like on on a subjective level, if I try to compare myself, I'll always find somebody who I can be like, wow, I need to step my game up, you know? And so part of it is just trying to constantly compare myself to people that I admire so that I'm not, you know, comfortable with where I'm at.
0: Hmm. What came first for you with all of these different endeavors? I guess you didn't start with directing, but was it stand up? Was it acting like what? What did you first start doing?
1: Well, the first thing really that I started doing was I was doing like guitar comedy. Basically, I listened to a bunch of like Stephen Lynch in high school Uh and, uh, you know, your weird owl and all that stuff. I used to write like song parodies on the school bus and stuff. And then when I came to New York, I started doing some open mics and I was actually doing like a series at Stand Up New York that was at the time like sort of a reality show meets musical comedy series where they had a bunch of comics and or musical comics and you would get a subject and you'd have to do 10 minutes, of new material every week on that subject. And uh, I think I came in second and David Carl came in first as a character. And we've been really good friends ever since was doing that. And I found it easier to fill the time by doing some jokes in between. And also there was a comic in Jersey at the time who was booking me a little bit and with the guitar comedy stuff, who also was kind of like, you should try leaving the guitar at home. And it was sort of like a bunch of things happening at once where like I was really enjoying doing just jokes. I came to sort of the epiphany that I didn't sing well enough to be a musical comedian. And I, you know, a lot of the musical comedy that I admired was really good musically. And I realized that not only is it also just better to listen to, but it's actually funnier. Like Stephen Lynch, love him or hate him or, or in between has a really nice voice. And so when he does some of the songs where he's being subversive or he's just singing dumb, dirty shit or whatever, it's funnier because it's more ironic to have that coming from somebody who's taking themselves seriously as a musician. And when I would listen back, no matter how much I tried and I spent time practicing the way I do with everything else, there's a limit to how well I can sing. And I and, you know, that being a factor and just enjoying doing jokes and realizing I can get more laughs per minute and it felt better being able to just do setup punchline rather than sometimes, you know, the best musical comedy has a lot of jokes, but you're still stretching it out over this period of time. You can have a whole three minute song. That's just a few jokes. That's still a solid work of art, but it's not quite the same as in those three minutes. You can fit a whole lot of punchlines if you just have set up punchline and then, you know, and a bunch of tags. Right. So that was first, and and I was doing, I started improv probably around that similar period. Okay. So I was doing improv, and I, I guess from improv, I started, I, I did like musical improv still, and I really remember seeing, like, there was Baby Wants Candy, but there was also I Eat Pandas, Eliza Skinner and Glennis McQuarrie, and they were awesome, and so I wanted to take Eliza's class at UCB, I met James and Doug from North Coast there. And I started doing North Coast. And then I really, you know, had a, wanted to do, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to do the short version of this whole thing, but I basically, I wanted to do stand up more and more. And I kind of had a great experience where I think I skipped not all, but a good portion of some of the agony of doing open mics because I was already involved in the like New York improv Scene and there was a lot that was like really the UCB boom where people were doing a lot of independent shows, and I'd also met a lot of people who were really great to me and gave me stage time. But that in combination with all the independent shows where I would just hit people up and be like, If you want to host, if you need somebody to host, if you want to stand up just to like change the pace of your show, so I did a lot of that in place of some of the more painful mics in New York, and that helped me. There was like a couple years where I was doing like multiple shows a night, just one show set after another. And and I didn't have to do it at mics, which, you know, you have when you when you have no other choice, you have to you have to practice on stage, you know, but like. It can be it can be kind of brutal, especially a lot of New York mics at that time, there was just a lot of scenes. There was a lot of people where it was really like, am I accomplishing something? It feels like everyone's here to laugh at themselves and their friends. And if I don't have a circle, you know how it is like.
0: Yeah, that's why I stopped doing stand up here.
1: (laughs) It's it's tough. It's really, you know, especially I don't know what the mic scene is like now, but like it takes time to find a few. And even then, sometimes you find a few mics where you think you really love it and you realize they're not preparing you for other stuff at all because you you did find your crew. And that's nice. But it's also just you and your friends laughing at each other. Right. It's right. Not a great
0: representation. Right. There was a mic I liked in Gowanus that I don't think is up now, but it was at uh, Freddy's. And I liked going to that one. Because yeah, that's a great everyone room. was paying attention and, and no one there knew me and they were paying attention and yeah. I didn't know if they knew anyone else, but they were paying attention to everyone else. So it was nice. Yeah. But any other mic, it was like no one paying attention to you. The host is barely paying attention. You know, It's like, you know, they're giving you less time than they're giving others. It's sort of like, oh, I don't, I don't know what's hitting here. I can't tell because no one's paying attention.
1: Yeah. And sometimes it's almost counterproductive in the sense that like I've had some periods where like I wasn't doing as many mics anymore, but I had like a set that I needed to prepare for something. And I was like, OK, I, I got like three booked shows, but I really want to run this a couple more times. And so I would go to a mic as well and I, I would do like the same five minutes that would like kill for three actual shows. And then I would do a mic and like most of it would bomb. And it's like, well, what's the takeaway there? Is it <laughs> right. that is it that this stuff actually doesn't work? Is it that those three shows were flukes? Is it what in my opinion is the most likely thing, but no guarantee that the people at that mic just happen to not be paying attention as much? And it's it's a different, it's just a different context, sort of for doing comedy. But the point is, is it gets you in your head and you're just kind of like now second guessing shit that you'd worked out and thought you were confident in. Right, right it's it's not it's almost like going to therapy where like you really have to be aware of whether it's productive or whether you're just telling yourself you're going and you're not actually accomplishing that much unless you do it with a particular mindset
0: absolutely i want to talk a little bit more about the hip-hop stuff because i've taken a hip-hop class that you taught yeah it was from the idea of i guess doing hip-hop improv but focus more on the rap part of it to teach people just how to do couplets and stuff. Yeah. Had you taken a class? Was that class that you took where you met James and Doug a hip hop class? Or like, when did you learn that if it wasn't a hip hop class?
1: Well, I'd been like almost in parallel with comedy. If maybe not before comedy, I would just freestyle at parties with friends and stuff since like also high school and college. And that was more just like, a getting high or getting drunk thing and hanging out. And then in some of those musical improv classes, I would sometimes rap rather than sing. And there were also warm ups that you would do where you would intentionally rap and do couplets because, you know, part of musical improv is rhyming, not always, but, you know, not always with hip hop either. But uh, you would practice couplets and stuff and I, I was always particularly good at those aspects at both like rhyming but also kind of flowing for a lack of better word where you're you're not really singing but you're doing something rhythmic and interesting and you're doing it where especially with with comedy and musical improv there's this kind of balance between having punchlines and so you're pre-planning where you want to land in those couplets and there's the flow which is more the hip-hop aspect where you know you listen to some great hip-hop and if you really break down what they're saying there's not sometimes it doesn't even make that much sense but it sounds awesome (laughs) when when you do that and so there's a balance when you're doing musical improv and and hip-hop comedy where you want to Hit those punch lines, but you also want that feel of flowing where it really, you know, you're, you don't just have an ABAB, but you have these like little couplets and, and internal rhymes and things like that. But I guess basically just that I think Doug and I met. I'm not sure. Was it James or Doug? Man, I, I really don't even remember, but it was definitely one of Eliza's almost definitely one of Eliza Skinner's musical improv classes and we would do hip-hop and then I think either Doug or James noticed that I was pretty good at that and that I had an interest in it and asked me if I wanted to join North Coast which was really in its infancy at that period and I think we were all like just kind of figuring out what it was going to be and whether enough people would have an interest in it.
0: That's cool. You did that for several years and then you started focusing more on stand-up and you have been able to do a lot of shows in stand-up and is that because you had built up enough of a name for yourself that you were able to get sets at the stand? How, how do you get in? Is it knowing someone or is it building a name for yourself?
1: Well, I, I wouldn't even say I'm in at the stand. That's for sure. I had a show running there mm-hmm. without getting too into the weeds, but like I'm not past there as, okay. uh, as far as like doing house shows. I everyone's gonna give you a different answer because there's kind of a different path towards all of these things. And okay. you can get you can get sets at a club because you've been hanging out there a lot and they get to know you and you've done enough shows uh, of the produced shows where they start booking you. You can get sets at the club because you got a walk on roll on a sitcom that's enough for you to sell some tickets with your name on it and everything in between. And so I did audition and get passed at the seller but I've only done one spot there since getting past because there's so much competition at the cellar that, you know, it's, it's a long list and stuff. Even with multiple rooms. Yeah. It's four, four rooms now. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, when you have Chappelle and Chris rock dropping by, it's, it's a lot. And I have granted less. I don't have a late night set and I don't have, I, I'm not the ideal person to answer the question of how to get into these clubs because there's an old expression of like, don't take advice from somebody who's not in a place where you want to be. And so I have certain things that I've booked and most of it, and most comics will say the same is just through years of networking and doing well at a show and having a person want you back and having someone else see you do well. And it's pretty slow. And then all of a sudden, sometimes someone sees you who books something important. And they're like, okay, can you do this thing? Yeah, so I've accumulated through the years various credits, some of which sound better than they are and some of which are better than they sound <laughs> that have that have helped book certain stuff. And I will say as, as of late, I have really I feel pretty because it was an emotional roller coaster with like really being excited that I passed and my audition at the cellar and then not getting spots for a while. It can be a little bit of a head fuck, you know, and I kind of. Once I got over that part, I started just doing more stuff outside the city and I got connected with some bookers and things like that where I started leaving and going to like I was in Asheville a couple of weeks ago. I'm in Savannah this weekend. And that gives me the opportunity to do a 40 minute set, which is like, A, you don't have a lot of opportunities to do that in New York. And B, it's like a very different pace. And it's, it's a much better pace for confidence building in some ways if you can fill that time where you can be patient and you don't have to like, Oh my God, if I, if I don't do this in the next five minutes, like that's it, I, I I will have, you know, or 10 minutes or whatever. That's the end of my set. Whereas in a 40 minute set, you can really like get to know the audience and take them to more interesting places and stuff and really work certain muscles that like, I mean, you can do city do shows in New York and unless you're a headliner where you can, you know, just book a club in a weekend and and sell it out you really just you're never going to be able to do that
0: right did you do warm up for jordan Cleppers, the opposition
1: i did and and then it got canceled like almost right after nothing to do Uh, with me
0: right right (laughs) Um, right i went to that like to them tape that like three times before you were doing it
1: i only did it once also yeah
0: i fully missed it
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, no, they had a regular person for a while and then I forget if that person quit or left and they were auditioning. And so someone recommended me to audition. And then I don't think they even ended up hiring anybody because they got canceled before they did it. But like oh. a few of us did it. And um, it's a very different experience, by the way. It's an awesome gig to have. Uh, it yeah. pays pretty well. It doesn't take up a lot of time. It, it's cool, but it is very different from doing stand up. And I know standups who end up not being happy and spending more time than they want to in a gig like that and then leaving. And there's, you know, there's, it's, it's hard because if you're a comic and you're just struggling to make ends meet, you're like, Oh, this bastard, like what a gig. Then they, but if you're somebody that's been doing that for a while, eventually like anything else, you take it for granted a little bit. And like, it is different. You're not going to be doing the same jokes. You might do a couple jokes, but a lot of it is kind of like more cheerleading than jokes. And a lot mm-hmm. of, you know, if you're a up and you go to watch one of those shows and you see somebody do warm up, I, I mean, you've seen it. It's kind of it's more pumping everybody up and make sure right. that you're going to get the reaction from the crowd mm-hmm. than it is. And everyone about does it you. so differently. That's true. Also, yeah, but there's a
0: lot of crowd work on a. A, like Seth Meyers guy when I saw him I don't know if he's still there and Colbert's guy both did a lot of crowd work and that that is i it probably keeps it fresh for them to be able to just do a bunch of crowd work right and also gets the crowd going and then there's all the like business stuff that they have like all of them have to do regardless of right. what show
1: And that is that
0: some of what people get frustrated with is like having to do all that business, the business side of like, all right, you got to laugh. You got to don't do this, don't do that.
1: Yeah, I think that's part of it. And I I guess, like you said, it depends on your approach to it. But I think if you're somebody who's like, the type of comedy you like to do is like subversive or about like particular things. Like you're not really going to do any of that. You're not really trying to get people, especially you're not trying to get people in a mentality where they're like ready for more edgy humor than that show is going to give them, you know? So right. you want people to be pumped to laugh at stuff in the style of Seth Myers. You can't have right. like Anthony Jeselnik that come out and do <laughs> his work. As a warm-up for Seth Myers,
0: you know. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, good point. Jesslinick used to write monologue jokes for Fallon, and yeah. his his style of humor was, you know, kind of too mean for lack of a better term, <laughs> than what is Jimmy Fallon's delivery system. Too
1: mean and too humorous.
0: <laughs> <laughs> like apparently they liked his jokes. They just were like, I can't do those jokes.
1: Yeah. And I mean, also, he's a brilliant writer, so I have no doubt he can write stuff in the voice of that show if he needs to. But I can see how that would feel, you know, a little bit like handicapping himself for it or something, you know?
0: Yeah. He's talked about that. and it, You know, it's nothing against Fallon because he liked Fallon. It was just I can't do my thing here so much. I know what they're doing, so I'll do that. But then he just did it for a couple of years. Max, I yeah. think I don't think he did it much longer than that.
1: It was a good career stepping stone for him.
0: Yeah. This has been a great chat. We didn't get to talk much about like your short films or at all about your short films. Maybe what we could do is talk about how you put together, write and direct a short that you've made. Sure. Like how, what is the process? Like how do you, for you?
1: Well, so the background there for starters was that's just the thing I started doing where it where eventually it felt like I was relying on other people for opportunities outside of stand-up to like be in stuff or, or make stuff. And so I just started filming sketches. And I do have a, a piece of advice there for sure, which is to not be above learning aspects of production. I I think I I personally have been guilty of it and i've seen people who are just like oh i just need somebody to film this sketch for me i need and it's good to find people to collaborate with but it's also good to not feel like something is too daunting or that you should expect or feel entitled to somebody else wanting to work on your brilliant ideas there's just too many people who feel they have their own brilliant ideas to jump on yours and be that eager to do it and i've had the, that perspective a little bit i've been guilty where i've underestimated just exactly what it is you're asking for someone when you want them to edit your comedy sketch or what it, whatever it is you're asking for a lot of hours on a thing where especially if it's a free collaboration you really want somebody to feel ownership and to be passionate about whatever it is mm-hmm. and so i learned to edit off YouTube basically, and now I pay the bills a lot with that, and that's gotten got me directing gigs because I can also edit the stuff I direct, and I often prefer to do that. And so, I think with the sketch, and I guess people do whole classes and stuff to learn how to how to make good sketch. But I think a, a big part, and you'll hear this from a lot of people with sketch, and I you know I've made a lot of sketches, and it I think for starters don't underestimate what a value you know i was gonna say this i was gonna say don't underestimate the value of like good production and you'll hear that pretty often and and i've heard it at like like there's there's like these short film festivals that they have in new york where people submit sketches and stuff and audio quality is a huge issue all the time because video quality can sometimes be a creative choice you know like you can be satirizing something that isn't if you're satirizing something that looks like an HBO show, you want it to look like an HBO show. If you're satirizing something that looks like a clip like of Central Park Karen and you're doing your own, you can film it on your phone and, and that's what it looks like. But when you have bad audio quality, you can't really tell what's happening. Like you can it would, like with bad video quality, you can still kind of discern it. But if there's supposed to be dialogue that's integral to just knowing what the concept and the humor is and. You didn't bother with like a proper audio setup, that's a big disservice. But the other half, the flip side of that is kind of what I just said, where, you know, the current sketch group on SNL, I think, started with like TikTok videos. Yeah, do not destroy. Yeah, I I think. I'm pretty sure. And a lot of their stuff looks like that. They have that like kind of manic quick editing of just them on camera or whatever. Yeah. And so, again, I have a little bit of a chip, I guess, advice wise, where like if I had, I've done a good amount, but I, would feel more comfortable giving more advice with video if I had a successful TV show or something like that, you know? (laughs) So everything with a grain of salt. But the part that I would say is just like make shit. There's such a, and I'm, I'm torn with this all the time too, where I have like pilots and things that I'm like, Oh, I I just got to get a meeting with the development company and blah, blah, blah. But in the end, like there's a a, there's all the other shit with trying to survive by paying the bills with comedy and whatever other aspects but in the end nothing feels better to me than like conceptualizing a sketch and, and having it out there it just feels good to go from concepts to execution and if you just focus on the small ideas that you're actually capable of executing it's really satisfying it's it's Maybe not as satisfying as getting a TV show that you can then like buy a house with or something, (laughs) but there's something pretty satisfying about just putting a sketch on YouTube and being able to share it and like learning from that and watching it and and really important obviously be honest with yourself like sit down and watch somebody watch it and if they didn't laugh don't be like well they laughed in their head or whatever else or they (laughs) or or at the end where they're like no it's pretty funny you know watch them for their honest reaction and if they Uh don't laugh see what it is because sometimes the joke was still good and you just needed to do something different in the execution see what it is that's different between how you imagined it and what somebody's watching and what you're maybe still adding with your imagination that makes it funny to you, but not as funny to them or whatever it is, you know?
0: That's great advice, I say. Don't sell yourself short. You're very talented. So people can definitely take this advice with more than a grain of salt.
1: Thank you. I I appreciate it. Take it with, (laughs) I don't know, like uh, whatever you fit under your fingernail of salt.
0: (laughs) Well, there it is, Boris. Thanks so much for being on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, man. It was great to see you.
0: Look, he is solid, so you can take his advice. If you want to see him perform and you're in New York City, you can. He's going to be live at Caveat this Monday, the 21st, at 7 p.m. on a show called Immigrant Jam. If you're not in New York City, you can see him on Zoom on Monday at 8 p.m. on a show with Judah Friedlander called Chirping Bird Comedy. Look up at Chirping Bird Comedy on Instagram and Facebook for details cool that people are still doing online shows we have links in the bio for all of this including ways to support the ukrainian relief effort links will be easier to view on our website blog for this episode go to thereitispod.com follow us on twitter facebook and instagram at thereitispod and subscribe to our youtube channel at ThereItis, and follow me on twitter at jason Jokes, and instagram at jason until next time be good to each other